Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Go get it. Man, that ball's way in left field. I don't care what field is in. Willie plays all field. Every time we come to the game, you're talking about Willie plays all the field. That's right. He plays. Let's call Willie and ask him. Call him. Okay. Hey, Willie. Yes. Are you Willie, man? Yes. Whose ball was that? Why was it? In left field. Well, that's Evans' ball. I told you that. Every time we come to the game, we got to talk about it. The next time, I'm going to sit in the grandstand. Say, hey, fellas. What's your name? Say who? Say Willie. Say hey, say who? Swinging at the plate, say hey, say who? Say Willie, that giant kid is great. When he hits the ball, it's long gone man. Hits it farther than camp can. Swings the bat like a little tripe. When they reach the ball, it's over ripe. Say hey, say who? Say Willie, say hey, say who? Swinging at the plate, say hey. Like an aeroplane, his cap flies off when he passes third, and he heads home like an eagle bird. Say hey, say who? Say Willie, say hey, say who? Swinging at the plate, say hey, say who? Say Willie, that giant kid is great. Yes, he covers center like he had jet shoes. The other batters get the Willie blues. Anything hit his way is out. Man, it just don't pay. Those guys to clout. Say hey, say who? Say Willie, say hey, say who? Swinging at the plate. Say hey, say who? Say Willie, that giant kid is great.
on a delayed basis and on Wednesdays on KUHS Denver Radio and Television that was created by the amazing, superb, the one and only Henry Archuleta. And I'm so happy to be on that station. And hopefully I will be on there live at some point. And that would be great, you know, because I really want to, you know, be on live back in Colorado again because I've missed that state, missed my friends out there. Try to connect with folks there, but it's nothing like being actually in the area, just talking to people. So things may work out for that. But anyway, I'm waiting for my guest right now because we're going to talk about baseball. As you know, and people who've listened to the show for years, they know this is a one of my favorite subjects. So in the meantime, while I wait for my guest, I'm going to look on here. Let's see. We're going to do some songs on here that I have. You know, I may do some. I mean, I got so many leftover songs from the other day when I was uh, had the great Mama Cat on here um, of Rockin' and Rhythm, you know, on uh, KUVO, formerly of KUVO. And that was such a fun show, and people were calling in, and I still get a lot of just folks that really – Love that show, but I'm going to play this one because one of the ones I missed uh, the other day. I'm going to play Jimmy Liggins' No More Alcohol as I wait for my guests on the Root and Root Show. I've been on an all-night drinking party. It's morning half past four. I still got the blues for my baby bag. Drinking don't move me no more, I don't want no more, no more alcohol. I'll put the ball back on the table, take one more drink and that's all. I'll tell those winos on the corner, I'm moving on down the line. I lost my money and my clothes, drinking that no good wine. I don't want no more, no more alcohol. I'll put the ball back on the table, take one more drink and that's all. From Mississippi to Georgia, down to old Ned's house. I heard that's where I'll find my baby. I'll pour all this moonshine out. I don't want no more. No more alcohol. I'll put the bottle back on the table. Take one more drink and that's all. I used to go out with my baby. I drank anything I could get. Now it's killing me to keep drinking. It's killing me to quit. I don't want no more. No more alcohol. I'll put the ball back on the table. Take one more drink and that's all. Yeah, that's the one and only 
Jimmy Liggins, No More Alcohol. And I forgot to introduce the first song. That was the tra- the trainer singing Say Hey, and that was a Willie Mays song which featured the one and only Willie Mays. And I played that song because right now I have a guest on who I enjoy talking to last May on this show, and I love his his blog and also the book that he had that came out last year, and I just read this thing all the time. I go into the throne room, and I know everyone knows what the throne room is, and just Continue to read this book, The League of Outsider Baseball. And I'm talking about the creator of Infinite Baseball Cards set in the blog site with Infinite Baseball Cards. And talking about Gary Soretkowski. I hope you get, I got it right that time. <laughs> yep, you absolutely did. No, oh, thank you so much, Gary. And I'm just happy to have Gary on here because, you know, it was really a fun show we had last time. And we didn't even. I mean, there was so much that we didn't talk about. So I'm just happy to have you back on, talking about you know, you know this this book and also what you've been doing. And first of all, um, people should be aware that uh, you helped in the design of Baltimore yeah, Camden Yards, as well as some other stadiums too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, um, I was actually uh, I, I was in the right place at the right time. I, I went to um, I went to art school in Baltimore. And between my junior and senior years in school, I was taking my portfolio around to see if I can get an internship. And back then you did a um, an unpaid internship, you know, one day a week or something like that. And right. I, I just I, I was always a baseball fan, and I happened to have a lot of baseball stuff in my portfolio. And I stopped in and knocked, I was knocking on doors, and I knocked on the door of this one design agency called David Ashton and Company. And I showed my book, and it just so happened that they had gotten the contract a couple of days before to do Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So nobody in the office liked baseball or, you know, was interested in baseball. So I got hired as an intern and it turned from going one day a week. Next week I went in two days a week, three days a week. And by Christmas I was working there as an art director before I even graduated college. So, uh, yes, that's that's what I did my senior year. And I I did, you know, the graphics for for the park, the logo, the usher uniforms. It was, it was a great experience. Oh, that's something. I didn't ask you the last time. I'm curious. Um, of all the parks that you've seen, I'm not just talking about just major league parks. What was your favorite, and may have been instrumental in your design, helping to design Camden Yards? Um, you know, the, the, it wasn't so much um, parks that I had seen. Um, I, I grew up in New Jersey, and, and uh, my fa- my uh, grandfather and father they grew up going to Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds and the old Yankee Stadium, and then also in northern New Jersey where I was from, you had um, uh, you had two uh, AAA clubs. You had the Newark Bears, and they had they, they played in um, Rupert Stadium, and then you also had a team in Jersey City. So they would tell me about these these beautiful old ballparks and and just the the, the things that were unique about them. You know, just the way that the outfield would be oddly shaped. You know, like the polo grounds were shaped like a horseshoe. <laughs> you know, it's the strangest ballpark right. ever made. And um, you know, Ebbets Field had this this beautiful marble rotunda when you walked in and. You know, each ballpark had its own idiosyncrasies. And just the fact that, um, I don't know, Just it, it seemed like back then they, they cared more about design. Like if you look at the old polo grounds, one of the things that I loved was um, I, I, on the seat ends they had an intertwined NY, you know, like they had on their on the logos that are caps. And that was something that, that we did for Oriole Park at Camden Yards. And there was no ball clubs that did that anymore. Nobody had done that since the 1920s or 30s. You know, in those modern ballparks like in Pittsburgh and Cincinnati and, and um, Philadelphia, there were just these, you know, metal stamped out sheets with 
Right. You didn't know where you were when you were sitting inside of it. And also so it's just the, like the, the little details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all the ballparks, too, were built with the, the, the block they were on in mind. And that's why, you know, as I know with Fenway Park, it's that odd look because they had to build it that way because of the block that they were on, the two city blocks that they originally were on, that they couldn't make any yeah. other room. Yep, absolutely. And, and like, that that was one of the unique, unique things about Oriel Park is, you know, when they built it, you had that, that B&O Railroad terminal that was right behind there in the outfield wall. Right. I mean, it's just little things, like, and it's you know, it's the, the, actually uh, it, it was a, a rundown neighborhood when they built it. But you know, later after they after they built the park, you had all these new neighborhoods spring up in that area, and it kind of revitalized that whole part of Baltimore. That's, that's really something. Listeners, you can join in the conversation with Gary at four two four six seven five eight three one five four two four six seven five eight three one five because I have some folks that. Mentioned that you would be on, and they are interested. I know they're listening now. They're interested in hearing some more of your stories because you have some. I mean, it, there's so much in the, the book, the League of Outside of Baseball. But not only there, but also in the uh, on your uh, blog, the Infinite Baseball Card blog there. And I want you to talk about first of all what you're doing because I don't think we. You did talk about your friendship with Leon Day, but since then. You are working with the Leon Day Foundation. And talk a little bit, for folks who may not know who Leon Day is, talk about him, your friendship, and what you're doing with the foundation. Sure. Um, like I said, I went to art school in Baltimore in the 80s. And um, I, I, when I grew up in New Jersey, I was always interested in, in the Negro Leagues because my grandfather would tell me about, to, about going to see the Newark Eagles down the street in, in Newark, New Jersey. And their star pitcher back in the 30s and 40s was a guy named Leon Day. And um, he, he was a soft-spoken guy, but if you read the old newspaper articles from the time, from the, from the late 1930s and, and, and the 1940s, they put him on the same scale as Satchel Paige. I mean, you, you really couldn't get any better than Satchel Paige in the 30s and 40s, you know. So um, when, I was, when I was going to school in Baltimore, I met a, a fellow by the name of Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and he was uh, he was doing some some things with uh, Negro League players across the country, and we we just struck up this friendship. I mean, we figured we were both interested in the same things, and he took me and introduced me to to Leon Day once. And Leon Day lived in Baltimore, and he didn't live too far from from where my apartment was. And we just I just struck up a friendship with this guy. He was just so incredibly gracious and 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 just kind. And I would just come over his house and just. We'd sit in his little, um, you know, like a little baseball room. We just, sh- I'd just shoot questions at this guy, and I'd ask about all his contemporaries, and I would try to ask him about his career, and he would never answer. He'd never, he would never brag about himself. And I would right. have to go to the old archives of the old Baltimore Afro-American newspaper and, and have to read about him, and, and then I would come back with more questions. And just, just a wonderful guy. He, the stories that he would tell, and then through him, he would introduce me to, to his friends that were players, and just, just, a, just a great guy. But um, I was you know, I mean, he wasn't that big, really, considering. No, in fact, I have a picture with him. Right, I'm, I'm about five foot nine, five foot ten. He was about an inch shorter than I was. You know, but he was, he was just this, this stocky, you know, just fire plug guy, you know, very, very, even when he was older, you know, he seemed very athletic. Um, and he was, uh, he was unique because he, he would pitch without going through a windup. He would just, he would just stand there and just reel back and throw the ball. <laughs> That's amazing. And the fact that he had, you know, I mentioned this, 
his size because um, he had an amazing, you know, what they said, he had an amazing fastball. Yeah, absolutely. He, and then um, supposedly he had a good curve too, but, yeah, he was mostly known for his fastball, and that's why he was he was always um, compared to Satchel Paige. And that's something I'm just glad that you are, you know, you're working with the foundation. I want to say a shout-out too because she was on this show earlier in the year, uh, Michelle Freeman, because she's, she's oh, been yeah. working previously and doing a great job. And this is the anniversary of his 100, he would have been 100 years old this year. And I know you, yeah, you know, they, Michelle, they, 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 and you will be doing a lot around that. Yeah, they they asked me to do the uh, the logo for the 100th anniversary of his birth, and it, it was it was a great honor. I mean, any, anything I can do to, to help, you know, bring the bring the career of Leon Day back to you know, to the forefront is just it was just an honor to do something to you know to kind of memorialize him. He was such a special guy in my life. You know, just listening to you now and listening, you know, going back to the previous broadcast last May, I mean, you can hear the love in your voice for the man. And and your love for the sport of baseball and your love for the Negro Leagues. Because it's really great to have someone, you know, and I try to, I really push the Negro Leagues on this show, and I've been doing that for over 10 years prior to being on the Internet and all, just keeping that spirit alive and keeping that energy alive. Because when you, as you know, when you, you, you meet the players, they're really, I've never met one that wasn't humble. And I've been yeah. fortunate to meet, as you have, a number of Negro League players, and they always, you know, they, they they are very modest, but they want people to remember them. They really want to remember, you know, what they did and their legacy and everything. So I'm just glad that you're doing what you're doing as far as with Leon Day. And also, you've just put out a card set on Pete Gray. I mean, not Pete Gray, sorry, that's another um, story in your book, Pete Hill. And I yeah, want to I, talk a little actually, bit about Pete Hill, because a lot of people probably don't know who Pete Hill is. Yeah, he's a guy, he 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 was around before what's known as the Negro Leagues existed. Before, um, you know, before I think 1919 or 1920, when the Negro National League was founded, there was no there was no real recognized league for black baseball. But you had all these barnstorming teams. And, you know, they would go around the country and then they would tour Cuba and, and some would go to China or in, uh, Japan. And, you know, so, so they didn't play in a recognized league, but there was, there was all these organized teams. But uh, the star at the time, when it, well, the, I guess like the, one of the first big slugging stars of the Negro Leagues was a guy named Pete Hill. And his career started around 1900 and lasted, I think, about until 1925, I guess, he he quit as a manager at that point. So he had almost almost 20-something years as an active player. And he was, he, he, I guess, um, a, lot, a lot of people would compare him to, to Ty Cobb, I guess. He was a, he was a great outfielder, um, was very fast, was able to just get those timely hits when he needed. But because he existed before, before the formation of the Negro National League in the early 20s, he kind of got – pushed by the wayside because his career didn't really span both eras. And I, I was asked to do a, to do a little card set, a 15-card card set showing his entire career and all the different teams that he played on. Because guy played for, I don't know, maybe 15, 16 teams. And uh, I did it with uh, Pete Hill's, let me see, I want to say it's his great-grandson or great-grandnephew um, who lives in Pittsburgh and, uh-huh. and a Negro League historian by the name of Gary Ashwell. So we did this little card set. It's, it's a neat little thing. 
It is. It really is. I had to get a. I had to purchase it because it's really, you know, just looking at, you know, the ads for it and all. I really want to get that because it's really, you know, yeah, I mean, all your art is just amazing. I have to say that not because I, I see, I feel like I know you now, but it's really just, you know, just captures the spirit of a different era and it's just really something. What do, I'm curious. What do some of the family members? Because you did talk, touch on Leon Day, but other folks. What do they say when they see, you know, their grandfathers, their fathers or something, as you've captured them? What do they tell you? Well, you know, it's interesting. There was um, – I, I do have a lot of families that contact me. and It's usually after the book came out or after I do a blog post on one of their family members. But there's um, – right after my book came out, I got a I got a letter from, from a family, and uh, she was saying how, you know, she saw her, her – um, her uncle Jim in, in the book, and she loved my artwork and the writing, and it was a great book. And you know, she bought a couple for for her friends and the kids. And, and then it turns out that she, and at the end of the end of the letter, she says, "I was sorry." I think she said something like, "I was sorry to see that he was put in the chapter called the bad guys." And it turns out that there that her the guy that she called Uncle Jimmy was a fellow by the name of Jimmy O'Connell who um, was thrown out of baseball in 1924 for attempting to bribe a couple of players to um, to throw a game. And, you know, I didn't really say anything that wasn't untrue or nothing bad about the guy. Right. He admitted that he did it. And, but this letter was just so poignant. And she went on to say, um, you know, this guy who, who, you know, tried to throw a game, we understood that. But to us, he, he was Uncle Jimmy, and he was a man who was devoted to my aunt. And it was just such a beautiful letter. But I wrote her back, and I said, you know, I have this blog. It's too late to put it in a book, but, you know, I have this blog. Would you and your family like to write a story about your Uncle Jimmy? And I'll, I'll do another illustration. And, and, and sure enough, she did, and I published it about, um, I guess about a month ago. Um, I put it on my website. It's a really nice article that that, uh, that the family wrote, really, really neat. And, it, you know, kind of it kind of brings to life these characters because, you know, I, I could look at them in newspapers and, and history books and things like that, but when you hear from the family, it just adds something else to it. That's something. And, I mean, the stories you have in the book are just, you know, and I call myself a baseball historian. I've been studying since I was a kid, but there are some things I just didn't know. And, you know, I'm, you know I was thinking about the bad, you know, the bad uh, boys, you know, bad guys of section of the book. I want you to talk about, a couple of them in particular, the guy, um, Ray White, because I never, you know, this is a very, it's a tragic story on the one hand, but it's fascinating what he was doing, what he tried to do. Yeah, Ray White was a, was a, was a right-handed pitcher in the Yankees organization back in the early 1930s. You know, and, and back then, when, when a team had a couple of days off, they wouldn't just sit in a hotel. They would go and play exhibition games against other minor, against minor league teams or um, or town teams, just to make a buck. You know, they, it was during depression, and even major league teams were struggling. So, so the Yankees were were on their way to play in Washington to play the Senators. And they had an off day, and it was it, it was in um, it was in the summertime, and it, you know, as you know, that part of the country is just just humid. This is in Norfolk, Virginia. It's just it's just a miserable, humid, gray day, and the Yankee players are in the midst of a pennant race, and they don't want to play an extra game. You know, they just want to rest up. And uh, but they have to go to Norfolk, and they they have to play 
against this this double A team. So during the, during the game, the pitcher for that day was a guy by the name of Ray White, and um, he was he was I think he was from Brooklyn or the Bronx, New York, and he had gone to Columbia University. And coincidentally, so did Lou Gehrig, the first baseman of the of the New York Yankees that he was going to face that day. Well, these two guys had met each other once before, and this is when Ray was, was at Columbia. And he tried to talk to Lou Gehrig, and Lou Gehrig supposedly blew him off and just made Ray White feel, just feel small. So this guy always had a grudge after that. So flash forward a couple of years, and the Yankees come to Norfolk. Ray White's the pitcher. Lou Gehrig gets up, and the first thing he does is hit a home run off of Ray White. Now, this is the Yankees' farm club, so all these guys are trying to look good, so maybe hopefully someday they'll catch attention of the manager and they'll bring him up to the Yankees. Well, Lou Gehrig completely shows Ray White up. Next time he gets up, Ray White sends a fastball right at his head and beams him. And Lou Gehrig goes down, and uh, he, he, was, uh, he was unconscious for a long time. They took him unconscious to the hospital in Norfolk, they thought he had a fractured skull, and he, he just had a very serious concussion. And it's significant because this was during that, that same, you know, the streak that, that Garrick had going where he where play every day, and the Yankees were supposed right. to play the next day in, in, against the Senators. And they told Garrick, the doctor said, you know, you need to, you need to take a week off. I mean, this is, you had a serious concussion. You almost fractured your skull. And he he didn't want to do it. He wanted to get back in the game. So the next, very next day, he couldn't put his hat on. So Babe Ruth gave him one of his caps. Garrick had to cut the back of the cap open to fit it over his head. His head was so swollen. And I believe he had a double during that game against the Senators, and it wound up getting rained out. So he only had to play a couple of innings, and he preserved his streak. But, um, yeah, Ray White goes down as, uh, as the guy that almost killed Blue Garrick. And also this may, you know, I think you allude to about that story too in the book is that there may you know this may have led to eventually what happened to Lou Gehrig in a sense. Yeah, you know nowadays with football players and even with some baseball players, there's another guy in my book, Ryan Friel. Well, um, you have to forgive me if I can't remember the name of the uh, name of the condition, but it's from having too many concussions. And doctors nowadays say that um, what Lou Gehrig had might not have been the disease that's actually named after him now. Right. He might have had this other disease from having too many concussions because the symptoms are more or less the same. It's very, very interesting. You know, of course, they can't go back and prove it, but there's a lot of doctors that, that say that that's, that's what happened. But it's, it's interesting because it, as you know, Ray White kind of comes off as a bad guy. But in 19, the 1930s, when this happened, when a guy hits a home run off of you, either you hit the next guy that that comes to bat against you, or you hit that guy that hit the home run the next time he comes up to bat. So Ray White wasn't necessarily playing dirty; he was playing by the rules of baseball at the time. You know, and the thing I should tell my listeners: you can call in at four two four six seven five eight two one five. Talk with Gary uh, Severkowski, the author of the book *The League of Outsider Baseball*, and a great baseball historian. And I want my listeners to understand, too, this is the era where there were no batting helmets. I mean, they're just at the plate with their caps on. Right. And a lot, yeah, and a batting, lot of folks were getting beamed. Yeah, and batting helmets didn't really come into, um, 
into fashion until I think around 1948, I, I believe the Brooklyn Dodgers, they, they actually had a, a cap. It was an eight-panel eight cap, and it had these, um, it, it was like a hard plastic that they would zipper inside. There was eight little triangles that they would zipper inside, so it looked like a regular cap, but it had, you know, it had a little bit of structure to it. It didn't really do much, but... Right, yeah, and I think the pirates bit. in the early fifties had this humongous cap. They had this, they had like it was almost like a the pictures I've seen was like almost a football helmet. Yeah, and this is the fun. This is the funny thing, is well, not, not really funny. It, it all kind of comes back to um, there was a guy by the name of Pete Reeser who played for the Dodgers oh, yeah. in the, the early nineteen forties, and he's in my book too. He's actually one of the guys that got me into baseball history. My grandfather used to tell me stories about him. What had happened was Pete Reeser was supposed to be the greatest ball player to ever live, but he got beamed a couple of times. And so did a guy by the name of Joe Medwick, who was a Cardinal slugger. He's a Hall of Famer. He got beamed, too. And both these guys were playing for the Dodgers in the early 40s. Well, Branch Rickey, who wound up taking over the Dodgers and knew both these guys because they were originally in the Cardinals organization, which Rickey ran, these were kind of his protégés. Well, he saw both of them have their careers destroyed by fastballs to the head. So when Jackie Robinson came up in 47, he didn't, he, for years he had been trying to develop a batting helmet that wouldn't make the players look like a sissy. So that, that's where the, the Dodger helmet came in with, the, with the, uh, the panels that would slip inside the cap. Now, later, Branch Rickey went from the Dodgers to the Pittsburgh Pirates, and he was still worried about people getting hit in the head. That's when they came up with, when the Pirates came up with the, it, it was almost like, uh, I'm trying to think, like, remember back in the 70s where you would get those 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 batting helmets, like the plastic batting helmets that kids used to wear? Oh, yeah. It was almost, yeah, that, that's what the Pirates thing was like. It was, it was just like a hard baseball hat. And Ricky was so paranoid about his players getting hurt, he made them actually wear them in the field, not just that bat. That's, that's really something. You know, and uh, it's funny because I know that, I think it was David Wright, the third baseman for the Mets, that had a he had this huge helmet about what five six years ago. He had been beamed, and he was wearing this big thing that a lot of the players actually were laughing at. Yeah, it, it, every once in a while you'll see that. I remember back in the seventies there was a ball player, and I can't remember. I don't know if it was at the Pirates or the Reds. But he had broke his nose, and he wore this. Um, it was like this metal and leather. Thing. I mean, it looked like something out of a horror film, but he did so he didn't re-break his nose. You know, he was trying to trying to play with. Was it was you know, it Dave Parker? Yeah, was yeah, Dave, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was Parker. Yeah, he put. Yeah, I remember that he put this. Um, now he, had, I think he said that he used a piece, part of a actually a football helmet, the um, the uh, face guard. Yeah. And he yep. had created yeah, it, this thing it, himself. Yeah, it looks like something out of a slasher film. <laughs> it does, and folks, uh, you can just Google, look for Dave Parker, and, you know, and look for that helmet, and you, you'll see it. On, it's, it's, a, it's on the internet. It definitely is. But I want you to talk about too. Since I started the show with the song about Willie Mays, and we didn't mention it, if I'm not mistaken, in the last the last time you were on, but talk about the story about Willie Mays in the book, because that's very that's something I didn't I didn't know, and I thought I knew a, a lot about uh, Mays, but talk about that, because that's a key thing. Yeah, I, this is one of my favorite stories. The, the first chapter of my book is, is called The Bush Leagues, and it's all it's all uh, Hall of Famers, but it's what they did before they got to the majors. And Willie Mays, um, 
came up in the Negro Leagues with the Birmingham Black Barons. And they had won the, let's see, 19, I want to say the 1948, um, 1948 Negro World Series. And he was, I think he was like 17 years old. I mean, he was just, just a kid. Well, that, that kind of propelled him. That, that got the scouts looking at him from the white leagues. Well, the New York Giants wound up signing him. But he was only about 18, 19 years old, and they figured they needed to send him down to AAA. They couldn't just bring him straight up to the, the New York Giants. He was just too young. He had little kinks that he needed to work out, things like that. So the, the Giants went, and they looked through their roster of, of farm clubs that they had. And there was, I think, um, they had a club down in the Deep South, and it was in the Southern League, and that wasn't integrated yet. And they didn't want to put him down there. There was no way that that was going to work. So then their, I think their double-A club was in Sioux City, and they had just had a race riot out there when they tried to they tried to bury an American Indian in the um, in the town cemetery, and there was a huge race riot out there. So the only basically the only place they could put him was in Trenton, New Jersey, which was just the bottom of the barrel, you know, below single-A league. And, you know, so it was way below Willie Mays' uh, uh, talent at the time. It was just, it was like sticking, you know, sticking a modern player in the Little League or something like that. So he he's kind of upset about that, but he you know, obviously wants to play Major League Baseball, so he goes with it and he shows up in Trenton. And uh, the team was on the road, and I think they're playing someplace in Maryland. And there was still, they still had Jim Crow down there, and um, he wasn't allowed to stay in the hotel with his white teammates. And he was the first, the first black player that was playing in this league. And um, so uh, when he, when he arrives, when he arrives at the ballpark, the game had just ended and he meets his, meets his new teammates. And they're all young guys that just out of service and stuff. And, you know, everybody says hello. And then the manager takes him aside and says, you know, we can't put you in our team hotel in this town. And so they drop him off in, the, uh, the segregated part of this town, and um, and he checks into a uh, checks into a hotel, and he's sitting in his hotel room. He's on the second or third floor, and he's kind of dejected about this, but he had gone through this in the in the Negro leagues. But back then, when he was in the Negro leagues, he had his teammates with him. Now he's all alone, and the rest of his teammates are staying in some hotel across town. Well, he's sitting there one night. He's unpacking. And all of a sudden, here's something out in the fire escape. And he opens up the window, and it's a bunch of his teammates. They had been so upset that Willie Mays wasn't allowed to stay with them that they had a team meeting, and these guys were just, just really angry. And a bunch of them went into the black part of town and climbed up the fire escape to his hotel, found out what room he was in, climbed the fire escape, snuck in, and they introduced themselves again and, and just wanted to stay with them to show solidarity, like, you, you know, you're with the Trenton Giants now. You're our teammate, and you matter. And a couple of the guys wound up spending the night in this hotel room, which was, you know, which was just unheard of at the time. But it was one of those one of those things that that made Willie Mays feel more accepted. You know, it was one of those things that were instrumental in bringing him up. And I'm glad that you put that in, in this book. And I want to ask you about. You know, I can go. We can go all day with this with this book and just everything you've done. But I want to ask you about um, Jimmy Claxton. Because he is someone that is totally forgotten, but he's a key person in baseball card history in a sense. So let's talk about Jimmy Claxton. Yeah, it's, it, actually, he's um, just I think about two weeks ago, uh, 
a baseball historian uh, on the West Coast, just published a book on Jimmy Claxton. Oh, really? He actually pieced, yeah, he just pieced together this guy's whole career because he had a he had a really long career. Well, let me go back. Jimmy Claxton was um, he was actually Canadian and he was um, uh, um, I, I think he was half half Native American and and half African American. So he, he was mixed. And um, he, he he was a he was a really good uh, um, right-handed pitcher. This this was around I want to say like nineteen well nineteen ten I think he probably started his career. And um, uh, he would play on these on these segregated teams out on the West Coast. And the let me see the, the Oakland Oaks of the Pacific Coast League were in last place and they they needed a pitcher. And they they looked around and there. Was, there was nobody that was local that started uh, searching around. One of the guys that played for the Oakland Oaks had played with Jimmy Claxton before. And so he said, you know, you can get this guy. And he's, he's an American Indian. And so they, the, the organization wound up signing him. And he went to a couple of practices with the team. And they wound up putting him in a couple of games. And he didn't didn't perform too well. They said the newspaper reports said he was nervous. You know, he was coming up for his first professional right. baseball game, so of course he's nervous. So um, he wanted to play in, play in two games, and, and um, uh, just at, coincidentally, a photographer for the Xena Candy Company, which was, which was a big candy company out on the West Coast, and they produced a series of baseball cards from around 1910, I want to say up to the late 1930s just happened to show up at the ballpark on one of the games when Jimmy Claxton was with the Oaks and took a picture of him, and they wound up making a baseball card of him. Well, the Oaks wound up finding out that, that Jimmy Claxton was half African-American, so they, they, they wound up releasing him. But the four or five days that he was up with the Oaks, he got his picture taken, and he's actually on a baseball card. So he's, he's one, of the, one of the first black players to appear on a real baseball card. And now that card is just worth a fortune. <laughs> yes, Dana, well, have you actually seen the card? Yeah, yeah. Actually, the pose that I used in my um, in my book is, is similar to the one that's on the card. If, if you look at oh, really? if you just type in Jimmy Claxton, you, you can find him. It's one of the only uh, known – it's one of the easiest pictures to find him is this card. But there's not that many examples of it because, you know, they say that it was taken out of – taken out of circulation when when the, uh, the Oakland Oaks um, cut him from the team. But I think it's just because not that many people collected baseball cards back then. No, not at all. And they, um, that card is probably, you know, have you seen a value on the, monetary value on the card? No, I, I haven't. I, it, it, it comes up for auction every so often. Um, and when it does, every time it comes up, it, it reaches new heights. So. That's amazing. You know, that's so funny. And I can... You ever think about the fact, uh, Gary, that one day, you know, when you you know, we're both long gone, that your your cards may come up for auction as this rare <laughs> thing. You ever think about that? No, I People haven't. People be talking about you when you're long gone, like you know, this guy. I mean, he was creating this amazing series. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, the um, the the you know the the book came out of the website, and and the little cards came out of something that I wanted to make this card set like I always wanted when I was a kid. You know, I, I used to collect the Topps cards in the 70s, you know, like like every other kid. But um, 
I always wanted cards of just those weird players. I wanted a Jimmy Claxton card, you know, and I couldn't find one. So when I started creating these, I try I tried to make the card set that I always wanted, and it never ends. I see. And what you know, I mean, you just did the one with uh, Pete Hill. I'm curious to see what is something that's in the back of your head, a card set that you really want to do that you haven't done yet, but you're thinking about doing it. Um, that is really obscure. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, you know, I, I'd like to do. Um, one of the things I've uh, I've been trying to research is um, I want to do a book or something on the the early uh, 1920s Baltimore Orioles when they were a Triple A team. They oh, won yeah. six pennants in a row, and you know, I think I don't know seven or eight of those guys wound up going up to the major leagues. You know, Lefty Groves was on that team, George Earnshaw. You know, all these really great players, and they would just completely destroy the international league every year. But um, they, it just had, there's a lot of great stories that are are from that team, and I, I'd and like listen, to do a, got, I'd like to do some type of sorry. Right, and listen, you got to remember that back then in the tw- you know in the 20s in particular in the 30s that the minor leagues were actually just a step, just a minor step from the majors that a lot of those minor league teams, like the Baltimore Orioles back then, would probably beat a lot of the major league teams of that era. Yeah, absolutely, because you got to think there was only eight teams in each league back then. Right. So, you know, so you had uh, – now, you know, there's twice as many as that now. So you could just take – it's almost like half of those teams would be in AAA right now back in the 1920s, <laughs> you know, which I guess you could kind of see when you see some of these teams play. But um, – and plus, you know, plus the, the sport is a lot more diluted now too because you have professional basketball, professional hockey, professional football, even professional soccer. So you have you have all these other sports that are siphoning off players that normally would have just went to baseball because it was the only game around. It was the only professional sporting event basically in the United States at the time. So the the talent pool is even further pulled back because of that. Yeah, that, and that's something we've talked about a number of times on my shows over the years. You know, one thing I'd like to see, Gary, as we conclude this uh, discussion, I'd love to see you do a book on um, stadiums. Mm-hmm. I mean, just drawings of the – not just major league stadiums, but the minor league, just these rare stadiums, some stadiums in other countries that's where they play, you know, like in Japan, baseball stadiums there or in Taiwan. Yeah, I, I've actually, uh, I, I, it's funny you say other countries, uh, my family's Polish, and uh, the, I think it was the last time I was in Poland, I went to a, a city called Kutno, which is, it's in the exact center of the country, but it, it also happens to be where Stan Musial's family is from, and oh. he actually built, he built a baseball stadium there, and it's actually, it, it, it's the headquarters for, for European Little League, and the whole baseball oh, complex there now. Yeah, so it's like I went to Stan Musial Field in Kutno, Poland. I got picked up the pictures, and that, that was pretty neat. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I have, to, I have to check that out there. But, Gary, I just want to thank you for being on again. And, you know, I'm a, you know, I know you're a historian, but what's your predictions for this year, for the season? Have you looked into that yet? Well, you know, I, I really think the Cubs are going to go. I, I know they're going to – I have a feeling they're going to get to the World Series this year. Um, now, I, I grew up a Mets fan, and I'm still a Mets fan, so I would like to see the Mets t- try again and actually win this year. But 
I, I don't I don't know if they really have the I don't know if they have the guns to do it. I, I think Kansas City has a really good chance of repeating again because they just they have essentially the same team, and they just seem to have a really good chemistry. I like the I like the um, Los Angeles Angels too. I, I think that team has has really good chemistry, and I, I, I'm hoping that this year they actually they actually pull it together because my, my wife happens to be an Angels fan, so I'd like to see oh, really? their oh, team go to the World Series. Well, they did get Simmons a shortstop. That should help them a whole lot. But they got they got a lot to work on on that team. They have a whole yeah, lot. Yeah, true. Yep. But they also have and some I, really know, good players, uh, too. It's... And I have to say about the Cubs, because I said this to uh, Sam Miller, who's on here from Baseball Perspectives, I really believe the Cubs are going to be this year's Washington Nationals, in the sense that they everyone's predicting them mm-hmm. as being this team that's going to go all the way. And there's something about, I don't know, I just don't see that. I, you and know, I, I, I saw them play a couple of times last year in in Chicago and then here in Cincinnati. And um, boy, I mean, they just have a really good infield. I mean, they probably have the best infield in baseball right now. And I don't know. It, it just seems like they got rid of that whole loser attitude that they had for so many years. You know, the lovable losers and all. I think people are just tired of that. And they they got the guy from um, Epstein from Boston that rebuilt their entire. Their, their entire organization. It, it took a long time to, to start to work, but you're starting to see the fruits of it now. So maybe if it's not this year, it's next year. But I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't, I didn't expect year. them to go that far last year. Yeah, I, I, I can see it maybe next year with that team. But I'm, I actually believe that this is, you know, this is the even year, and I just think the Giants are going to get back in there again. You know, it, it seems like they do it every other year. So. <laughs> Um, try to think of it. So, yeah, actually, last year should have been their year. But yeah, it seems like every other year they would they get all the way to the World Series and win it. So, but we will see, and I will definitely have you back on the show again because I enjoy talking to you, my listeners. The people they don't call in, but then they send me these you know messages on Facebook, you know about you know what you do and everything, and you know how great you know you are, and just your books and all your you know your blog and all. And tell folks who don't who haven't been to your blog site. How they can how they can get there and how they can reach you? Yeah, it, it's called the Infinite Baseball Card Set, and if you if you just type that into Google, you can it'll they'll bring it right up. Or the the web address is uh, infinitecardset.blogspot.com. But if you just put infinite infinite card infinite baseball card set or something like that, it it should pop up and you, you can't miss it. That's good. And also, I want you to talk about too. There's something that we didn't mention before that you you know you offer. You don't say offer, you have to pay for it, but you can create card sets for folks as a business Yeah, I, I get a lot of uh, a lot of people who's, you know, oh, my my Uncle Roy played for the, the St. Louis Browns, uh, like a farm club for the St. Louis Browns back in the 1930s, but he never had a baseball card. So, you know, I would do that, and, you know, people would give him out for birthdays or, you know, Christmas presents. So I, I do a lot of things like that. So it, that's actually really fun to do. You know, and it's not just folks that play, you know, from reading a site, it's not just folks that just have played baseball. It can be anyone that you kind of, you know, weave around and twist some things and to make it, you know, to show that they have a love of baseball. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just did something for a client. Um, he's a plumber out in California, and he got I designed a card for him, and he's uh, he's shown in a pitching stance, and that that's his business card. You know, I had, like, his business – uh, has his portrait and stuff on the front, and then the back has his has his business information. So that that's his business wow. card that he hands out. <laughs> well, I'm saving my I'm saving my money because I want to get some cards from you. <laughs> I, I haven't 
And I want to see, you know, I want to call it a me with a baseball hat on, preferably a Rockies hat, and in a, in a radio studio. So that that's my thing. But Gary, I just want to thank you again for being on, and hope to meet you in person sometime this year, hopefully, because I want to get this book signed and just meet you. So I just want to thank yeah, you so I, much I, for talking to you. I have a great time talking to you. You know, so we'll just have you back on here again. I just really appreciate everything that you do as far as keeping the baseball history alive. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks again for having me on. All right, you take care. And again, that was Gary uh, Severodowski. See, I, when he goes off, then I can't say anything. <laughs> Gary Severodowski, and that was the uh, he's the author of the League of Outsider Baseball, the blog site Infinite Baseball Cards, and just. That's a wonderful historian of baseball and all. I hope you enjoyed the conversation on the Root and Root Show. And um, I'm going to get to some music now, too. We're going to switch gears for a little bit here. I'm going to play right now. I think we'll do a little bit of, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to play, actually, because today, if you're listening live, today on the 19th of March is the anniversary of the birth of the great saxophonist, the free jazz proponent himself, the one and only legendary Ornette Coleman. And I'm going to play Ornette Coleman. This is from the album Broadway Blues, and I'm going to play the title cut. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
right, that was the great Arnett Coleman, and for his birthday, that was Broadway Blues on the Root and Root Show. As we get to more music here, and I'm gonna play right now. Um, I think somebody had the blues, didn't have the blues anymore. I'm gonna play right now, Big G, because Big G's talking about his last paycheck. So let's hear Big G right now on the Root and Root Show, and let's see if we can find Big G here. We're having a little, minor little problem here of trying to get the music together here on here. So I'm just doing this and stalling as I get it. Here we go right here. Big G, last paycheck on the Root and Root Show.
Can do. 
girl looks like she got locks and rocks in the back of her pants. I said, mister, them is just lumps. And them lumps is just like grandmama's gravy. They good for you. Eat some.
your hands in the air if you's a true player. Triple honey, getting money, playing niggas like dummies. Uh. You got a gun up in your waist, please don't shoot up the place. Cause I see some ladies tonight that should be having my baby, baby. How you living, Biggie Small? Imagine the business giving ends to my friends and it feels stupendous. Tremendous cream, fuck a dollar and a dream. Still tote cat strapped with infrared beams. Chopping holes, smoking line optimals, money holes and clothes, all a nigga knows. A foolish pleasure, whatever. I had to find the buried treasure, so grams I had to measure. However, living better now, Gucci sweater now, drop top BMs, I'm the man, girlfriend. Honey, check it. Tell your friends to get with my friends. We could be friends. <laughs> Shit, we could do this every weekend. That's right. Alright? Is that alright with you? Yeah. Keep banging. I
and How We Roll, the late big pun. And before that, we did Ronald Isley when he was known as Mr. Biggs, and that was Just Came Here to Chill. Before that, we did the Notorious B.I.G., Biggie Smalls, and that was, uh, they call me Big Papa, and the late uh, Notorious B.I.G., by the way. And before that, we did Big Rob and the Big Woman Song. Before that, we did Big Cynthia, Ain't Nothing But a Big Woman Thing. And we started to set off with uh, Big G, just happy that he had that, he paid that last paycheck. So, hope you enjoyed that on the Root and Root Show. In fact, I'm going to do some more. I got some more big songs. Let's do a little bit of Big Mama Thornton and Unlucky Girl. So, let's hear that on the Root and Root Show, back from the 50s. I went down on Blake Street to get a glass of gin. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. 
one And somebody beating on a, a ding dong
dusty, I'll brush you off. Lipstick, pollen pee, lipstick.
And that was Adele's uh, Hello is done by DC's own backyard band, BYB. And I've played that before, and that's the go-go style of it. I hope you enjoy that on the Root & Root Show, because we got folks from all over the world that listen to this show, especially they're listening on uh, KUHS Denver Radio and Television. So I know you're checking that out. And before that, I did the uh, Brides of Frankenstein, and that was Love is Something. Before that, we did two Motown hits, um, Carolyn Crawford, another forgotten Motown artist, and A Smile is Just a Frown Turned Upside Down. The same... That same lyric was used in the song also, uh, Smiling Faces Sometimes, by the Undisputed Truth. And we started that set off with Kim Weston, who was probably the best singer at Motown. And that was a thrill of moment. She's, she's still out there performing. She's amazing. Kim Weston, she should have got, she should be a huge, I mean, she, she ranks as one of the best singers ever that came out of R&B music, well, any music, and and check her check her rendition out of the Lift Every Voice and Sing. If you doubt if she can't really sing. She was an amazing singer and still is out there performing. Great singer. But we're going to get out of here now. And I want to, again, thank my guest, uh, Gary Sadokowski, for being on this evening on the Root & Root Show, talking a little baseball history, as I love talking about. And hope you check out his site, uh, Infinite Baseball Card Set. Dot com that blog site and also get that book the lead the lead of outsider baseball and I just want to thank everyone who is watching the show listening to this show because some folks actually watch it I don't know how they do that but they watch it somehow on YouTube although we don't have any cameras here or anything but you listen to it on um, blogtalkradio.com or you listen to it on KUHS or you go also to iTunes or YouTube or somewhere, but my show is a little bit of everywhere. And I just want to thank everyone who is following the show, new followers. If you want to follow, go to my website on Facebook as far as Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. Go to the Twitter site, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam. Check us out there or go to blogtalkradio.com. Look for a Root and Root show. So, again, this is Greg Rasheed with the Root and Root Show, and I just enjoy doing this. I thank you for all the folks who send in just a nice, you know, just a nice, uh, just warm and tender and just nice um, support that you, you know, to give me to keep this going. And all the folks out there who also suggest uh, topics for the show, because the, the majority of the topics on this show are based on listeners like yourself who write me, who call me, email me, just you know, just tell me, well, can you get this person? Can you talk about this? Can you play this music? Can you do that? So continue to do that. Well, I'm getting ready to get out of here, but please, you know, along the way, hug someone, help someone that you can, you know, give someone a smile, don't let a smile turn into a frown upside down, and also go in love and go in peace. As Greg Rashid, we'll see you next time on the Root & Root Show. Thank you.